Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. Let's get started. So you're back from DevCon and I'm back from vacation. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. How you doing? I'm good. How was your vacation? You didn't really take a vacation. You went to DevCon. How was that? It was a lot of fun. Um, Got to meet a lot of people. Got to talk to a lot of people that I knew. Got a lot of feature requests from users. Uh, It was a blast. So the question that's been on my mind for two weeks, what stunning new features did FileMaker reveal about VR and AR? Uh, Unfortunately, all of that was covered in the NDA sections, (laughs) so I can't talk about it. Nice. I'm sorry. I, I really can't. I can neither confirm nor deny any such features if, in fact, they may exist. Which I'm almost certain they don't. You can draw your own assumptions from that statement, but I can't help mm-hmm. you there. Are you also a lawyer? Uh, no, but I play one on TV. Nice. So, yeah, um, I'm back from vacation. It was a very, very unproductive 10 or 12 days off, which was the whole purpose. Um, you know, it was nice to get away. There was a couple of days that I spent out next to a lake in Pennsylvania, away from computers. I did take my laptop with me, and it didn't even make it out of the bag the whole time. I just took it just in case there was you know, a customer emergency. But uh, everything was quiet. And it was uh, there was not really any internet. I had this ancient technology available called 3G. <laughs> um, but uh, didn't didn't use it too much because it was painfully slow. But it was uh, it was alarming how often I reached for my phone. Uh-huh. Even there wasn't really much to do there, which is weird because I don't really use my phone that much because I'm always sitting in front of a computer. So it was, I was really just reaching for a computer in general, and uh, <clears throat> managed to strip it down and uh, keep myself on the iPad as much as possible, which was just full of books. So I got some reading done, and you know, basically hung out with some family and uh, saw the sights in the middle of nowhere. There was a, I think it was an Apple blogger, maybe just somebody in the Twitterverse who had a story about going into a um, Apple store to try and get some... His, his iPhone was acting funny. And so he showed the people at the Genius Bar, and they said, we can totally fix this. It'll actually only take about 10 minutes if you just want to sit down. He's like, 10 minutes? Sure, that's no problem. Mm-hmm. So he goes ahead, and he sits down, and he reaches into his pocket to pull out his iPhone. And there's no iPhone there. So he's just sitting there. And about 30 seconds later, he he reaches into his pocket to pull out his iPhone, and his iPhone is not there. And after about the third time he does it, he's like, this might be a problem. <laughs> like, literally incapable of sitting in one place and not pulling out the device. It's about, a, like, smoking. Yeah, in a store full of iPhones, even. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I'm quite that bad. It was more just a a, a physical habit of just reaching for something. Mm-hmm. And I kept turning it on like, oh, okay, there's the time. And there's 30 blog posts I saved if I want to read those. But no, nah, later. So did you end up rereading Walden? No, I did not. Okay. Didn't really get much I got some reading done but it was in small chunks cuz I was pretty much hanging out with family most of the time so I guess it was nice to be around them for a while I'm not exactly a a good human don't really, <laughs> don't really pay my family much attention on a regular basis so. apparently they have like thoughts and feelings and lives of their own that they live that you know got to hear about that so. and I'm always okay with that as long as they do that over there I mean I don't want to get infected by their stuff yeah yeah other than that I got back last week and um, before I left town I did to me what sounds like 
the most fun thing I could do on a vacation, which was an email migration. (laughs) Obviously. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing I enjoy, it's ripping down my productivity systems and rebuilding them, which is just a sick, uh, I'm just a sick person that my, my way of fun is just, let's just tear down everything that I've used for work and rebuild it from the ground up. So I migrated everything over to Google apps and started using a new task management system and a new way of taking notes and a new way of organizing files and just, you know, swept everything out. I guess a lot of what I was doing, how I was running my business was still based very much on the jobs that I had worked on previously. Um, when I started my business, I structured that company as much as possible off of those two companies that I worked for previously because I was doing the same type of work. But now I'm doing a completely different type of work. And I was just doing a lot of things and paying for a lot of things that didn't really make sense with my current pivot into the VR industry. So it was nice. I, I've had this stuff on my list for eight or nine months that has been in my someday maybe list. I'd like, you know, do a mail migration, find a new system for this, find a new system for this. And for me, it's just totally geeking out. Um, I could sit there and organize files all day. <laughs> so, so two things. Did you ever see the, uh, the TV ad that had little kids talking about the future. The little girl was like, I want to organize files all day long. No, I want to be overworked and underappreciated. And just having little kids say this (laughs) stuff was just amazing. Um, I also wanted to say that for most human beings, the, one of the, uh, Conflicts, the internal conflicts that we have to deal with is that rebuilding your productivity management system is almost the very definition of anti productivity. Exactly. Like it feels like you're making gains and it's all going to be better, but it's all net loss for a long time until you can make those up. But you chose to do that during vacation, which may be the only time I've ever heard of somebody rebuilding their productivity management systems and it wasn't lost time. <laughs> So I'm impressed. Congratulations. Nice. I win that round. Yeah. Yeah. And it was good to just simplify stuff. I was using too many tools and services and had data spread out in quite a different, quite a lot of places. And uh, a lot of it was my, I've got this tendency or I've had this tendency to really want to own and control everything myself. You know, all of my notes are in Markdown as opposed to Word documents or anything like that. And even all my databases are backed up in non-database formats so I can get to the data if I lost access to the database technology, things like that. I've always just been real picky about that type of stuff. And I just had to just push that person out of a moving vehicle and like, I don't have time for that. This is all a distraction. And just looking at the amount of time I've spent this year looking at alternative Markdown markdown editors that work on Mac and Windows and iOS and Android and just not being able to find anything that does everything that I want. I was like, fine, no more Markdown. It's causing too much of a problem. It's got to go. It's not completely gone. I'm using it right now for the show notes and stuff like that. But in terms of my day-to-day, how I take notes, how I do web clippings, how I write journal entries, it's just gone. I'm using Google Keep for almost everything. And, you know, it's not it's not perfect. And there's some things I wish it did differently. But it's taken a lot of just busy work. I, I was able to give myself tons of busy work with that kind of thinking. And I'm just limiting myself to these more constrained tools of like, this is what it does and it doesn't do anything else. And if you want it to do something else too bad, because this is what it does. And, uh, just like when you constrain your feature set in an application, it makes it easier to develop constraining my tools to a much narrower set of tools. Um, really makes me use those effectively. Even yesterday I do a weekly review every Saturday and some weeks I have a tendency to do it Friday to just kind of procrastinate on what I'm doing on Friday and go ahead and do my weekly review early. But my new system doesn't really allow me to do tasks in advance very well. So I just didn't 
out of a sense of perfectionism to not break the system. It's like, fine, I'll just wait till tomorrow and kept working on what I was doing, which is a weird side effect. Huh. Okay. So which tool was it that leaves you in that state? Uh, That was Google Inbox. Okay, so it's been deprecated into the, or or dumped into the kind of tickler element, Mm -hmm. and it'll pop back up tomorrow, and that's when you get it. Mm-hmm. Well, I can do. I can go reach forward and pull any of those forward anytime I need, but with recurring tasks, it has a tendency to just break the recurring thing, and I have to reset it back up. So I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. That would be an extra thirty seconds out of my life. Why would I do that? Oh, okay, yeah, that's great, Joe. <laughs> well, for me, it's more of a once I get all the recurring things set up. I want to make sure that they continue working because there are things on that list that if I forget, then there are legal consequences. Like if I forget to file my sales taxes, then I've got fees to pay and stuff like that. So, Gotcha. I'm pretty guarded about the recurring tasks. But yeah, it was, you know, I, I stripped a whole bunch of services down into basically just Google apps and just had to, get rid of the version of Joe that was super creeped out by Google's stance on privacy and or lack thereof. So I, you know, I baptized myself in anti-privacy by getting a Google home. I just installed my eavesdropping device on the desk and just get this over with. The NSA appreciates your efforts. I'm sure it does. And basically there's even a note somewhere in my system that I wrote in Markdown to myself uh, effectively along the lines of if I can't fight Skynet, at least I can help build it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I use Chrome very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. And when Chrome added audio prompting where you could just say, Hey, Chrome search for whatever. And it would, I was like, I want to turn that off. <clears throat> so you turn it off in the preferences and then you say, Hey, Chrome, and it pops up a little thing that goes, you turned this feature off. <laughs> oh, I'm like, so you still listen. Okay, s- stop. <laughs> and finally, I was just like, okay, Chrome is just this thing that we use periodically for testing. But no, I am not your product. Jerks. Anyway, um, you can edit as much or as little of that as you feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much been my attitude up until about two weeks ago. You know, just just seeing how much of my own time and productivity that attitude was costing me. Um, it just really wasn't worth the payoff. So the dog has been very nice and quiet right up until the point that it started drinking from the water dish a moment ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could hear it very clearly. She's so, thirsty. So Joe has a dog right now. Yeah, some of my friends are out of town and left me my favorite dog in the world. I'll throw some, throw a photo too in the show notes. It's a it's a good dog. I mean, that's it's it's not a problem. It was just funny that the dog's basically silent and all I hear is the sound of the dog lapping up water. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's she's sitting right outside the office, just kind of giving me this look like, who are you why? talking to? Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's used to being here with me working, but she's not used to just seeing me talking to the light box thingy. So anyway, this this past week I got back into the groove a little bit and I spent some more time cleaning up my systems and just doing some work on the business that I've been pushing off for a while. And then I did a bunch of consulting work all week and all weekends. I still have some more to go. Just a big data migration from a database project I did at the beginning of the year. And uh, school year is almost beginning, and this is an education client, so getting all the new data loaded in the new system from the old system and just a lot of work. It's not particularly challenging work. It's just a large quantity of work. So I've, uh, I don't think I've actually opened Unreal Engine in over two weeks, which is kind of weird, seeing how I've been living in it for the last couple of months. So I don't have a ton of VR development topics to talk about. Um, what about you? 
<clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't either. DevCon has a tendency to be very energizing for me. But what mm-hmm. I forget is that that energy fades extremely quickly. And that what I'm left with is a weariness. Yeah. <laughs> and so like I, I, I know people who schedule a week of vacation immediately after DevCon. And I mm-hmm. think I need to start being one of those people. Yeah. Because I, I got home and there were all these things that I wanted to do. And I sat down and I brought up the, I brought up Xcode and I was getting ready to start on these things. And I poked at a couple of them and it was just, suddenly I was just very, very tired. <laughs> so I went and like took a nap and watched a little, I mean, I basically get nothing done the week after DevCon, basically because my brain is fried. It was complete overload for an entire week. And now I'm back and hopefully in this upcoming week, I'm going to get some stuff done, but not nearly as much stuff done as I wanted to. And I couldn't even do other things like just brain drain. So I wanted to load up Unreal Engine and be like, okay, well, if I can't do anything, you know, typically productive, let's do some VR. No, no, not so much. That all just feels like too much energy. Soon today is not that day. So, no, I have not made progress on my VR development either. Cool. It happens. I'm diving back in this week into some stuff that we'll talk about later. But there's something I wanted to talk about first. Um, In lieu of VR development topics, I figured we could just talk about something kind of fun in and around the VR industry. You finally read Ready Player One. I did. Welcome to the initiated... So that book is kind of the like the poster child book of VR. Um, I've probably heard it referred to in my podcast history of VR. I probably heard it referred to a thousand times. Uh, some people were really emphatic fans of it, and some people were just kind of meh. Yeah, that's a good book, or it's okay. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. I know you you're pretty good at analyzing a book <clears throat> and. Uh, this podcast actually started, or our previous podcast actually started, because Dave and I would have long conversations about sci-fi or books or programming, and we wanted to start capturing some of those. So I want to hear what you think about Ready Player One. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is you should probably like shift this entire conversation to the tail end of the podcast during mm-hmm. editing, um, because I fully intend not to avoid generating spoilers. Yeah. So yeah, if absolutely. you have not read the book or you plan, if you've not read the book and plan to see the movie, I have no idea what kind of spoilers I'm generating that in and of itself may be a spoiler. So if you're not interested in taking part in this conversation, I'd probably just skip the rest of the podcast, which is why I'm saying let's move this to the end and people mm-hmm. could just go, yep, nope, without missing anything else of importance. As if there was ever anything substantive of importance that we talked about, Joe. Nice. That um, said. So, <laughs> so yeah, I would go ahead and stop now if you if you haven't read the book. And if you want to read the book, you can find it on Kindle or iBooks or Google Play Books. There is an audible version of it that I've, I haven't tried myself yet, but it's on my wish list. Um, but it's read by Will Wheaton, who was Wesley Crusher. And it sounds like it's a really good read. So maybe check that out if you're not into reading. If you like the audio experience, maybe just pause here and go get that and come back. Because we are going to completely spoil it. Anyway, proceed. The butler did it. No. Um. <laughs> I was just, all of a sudden I was thinking, like, there's too many references in there. Was there, was there a clue reference? <laughs> Um, it's it's been almost a year since I read the book too. I was you know kind of okay. going through some notes today. I'm like, what what was everybody called? Something Actually, like you know what? I'm not sure there was a clue reference. Yeah. Um. No, they were all Gunters, which was Egg Hunters, in much the same way that we get Blog from Weblog. Um. Mm-hmm. So, as a general rule of thumb. I'm not a big fan of books that contain substantive pop media references, Mm -hmm. largely because it dates the book and um, 
turns it into something that, that almost by definition isn't going to age well. Like, I'm not sure that anybody is going to read Ready Player One in 40 years and get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, just because if you haven't had any of those, I'm not saying it's definitely going to be boring for somebody who has none of those media references, but I had all of them. And so I can't tell what it's going to be like for somebody who never played Pac-Man at a uh, cocktail table mm-hmm. Pac-Man machine and <clears throat> um, never played Dungeons and Dragons and dealt with particular modules and things of that variety and, you know, didn't grow up with things like war games you know, um, pop culture references to Monty Python, probably going to age pretty well. Matthew Broderick in War Games, not sure. Uh, I already meet a lot of people who have who have never even seen the game Joust. Yeah. <clears throat> At the same time, though, the the book, the the characters in the book kind of defeat your argument because they are all teenagers and such 20 or 30 years from now and they know this stuff because they're researching the dude who is your age who is super obsessed with this stuff correct i'm just not sure if there's anybody you know is bill gates going to take that last 200 million dollars when he dies and set off a contest that requires knowing all of this stuff because without that it's never it's never going to be relevant to those people. I mean, th- there's always a, a small historical element, but it's not even like you could sit down and go, I'm going to look at all the old video games. That would give you 20% of the media references you need to really get this book. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I played head-to-head Joust a lot. And trying to jump on the other jousters head. And, you know, they would pop one of the other jousters and I would swoop in and scoop up the egg and take a higher score. It was amazing and wonderful. But I actually had the experience and so I could appreciate everything that the character was going through. Without having had that experience, I'm not sure. It may be fantastic. I, I could be totally wrong. It could be that the text of the book explains enough of what's going on and where these media references are coming from that you get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think <clears throat> I got most of I don't think I got all of them. I probably only got 60 to 70 percent of the references. OK. Like I had never I had played Joust, but I did not remember what it was called or anything about it until I went and looked at the Wikipedia page. Like, oh, yeah, that. But it had never. I was young enough when I played it that it just didn't stick in my brain. How, how could you forget Joust? No idea. I have I have forgotten more about video games than I remember. And I'm constantly reminded that every time I listen to a podcast and people are making references to games, I'm like, oh yeah, I have played that. It just turns out I never had any of these games. All of my friends had all these games and computers and consoles. and I played them all at their houses. I had a Game Boy. With like 10 games, which was all the games that a human would ever possibly need. Um, so one of the, the things that I always kind of call back to is um, there was a David Weber book where it's a large space battle huge battleships going into into combat and as they're readying to go into combat one of the admirals begins uh piping music throughout the ships to inspire the people going into battle and apparently he was a classicist and so one of the songs that he selected was i'm pretty sure from evanescence and i don't think that's going to age all that well i mean that's not going to age all that well now certainly not in a hundred years yeah, um, I don't think we'll look back on Evanescence. I mean, I, I enjoyed Evanescence, but I don't think we're going to look back on that music and go, wow, that was some of the greatest music that we put out in this generation. Well, 
To be fair, though, I, I'm a big fan of great books, great books that last centuries and millennia. I've read quite a few books like that. I've, you know, I've read the classics, but uh, I don't think that's what the author was out for with this book. Mm-hmm. I think he was out to sell a book and make some money, which is what he, it sure. was. He, and particularly, I think he was scratching his own itch. He wanted to write a book about all the stuff that he was obsessed with. Like I, I could not write this book because I, I wouldn't care enough to. Even if it was a great story and a great idea, I just wouldn't care enough to do the research and get all the references right. And but someone who is obsessive about that stuff could write a pretty good book out of it. But I don't think he was trying to make it an enduring classic that people are going to remember for ages and ages. And he may very well the book may be remembered not because it's a literary classic or particularly well written. Or anything like that, but I think it might actually the one claim to fame it may have is getting a whole bunch of people actually interested in VR. If this movie is in any way successful, I'm not sure if that's actually going to have that big of an impact. But a lot of people on Twitter seem to think so. Keep saying things like, you know, this movie could finally get the VR party started, things like that. Like, that's kind of already going. Mm, it. It might, but it might also introduce a bunch of people to VR who will then be disappointed because current VR is not the Oasis. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, not not even close. Um, you know, we're we're in our first stumbling steps, or or in the tenth stumbling steps, and it's mm-hmm. fantastic. I I think it's great, and I love what's being accomplished by the communities, but um, it's not the Oasis. So, yeah, I I can appreciate the book for accomplishing what I suppose the author was probably trying to accomplish. Like, mm-hmm. that's fine. But it's the kind of thing that always makes me leery about, like, I'm always looking for books that I like so much that I tell other people, oh my gosh, you have to read this. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm not sure this is one of those. Because I can't tell if anybody else is going to get anything out of this book. Or is the audience, the proper audience for this book, so terribly self-selected? You know, will my nieces enjoy this book? I've got a 22-year-old niece. Is she going to get anything out of it? I can't tell. I don't know. All I can tell you is I read it last year because within the course of two weeks, 10 or 15 people told me to. Right. Like there was some flash in the pan where everybody read it all at once and they were all telling me, you got to read this book, got to read this book. And I read it, you know, I guess I haven't really gone into my opinion too much, but I thought it was okay. It was fun to read. Um, I don't read a ton of fiction. I read more fiction the past year than I have in the past 10 years. Mainly just because I've been intellectually lazy as I'm learning more and more programming stuff. (laughs) You're also hanging out with people who like a lot of sci-fi. That's true. I read a ton of sci-fi when I was growing up, but for the past 10 or 15 years, I've read mostly classics and nonfiction and books that hurt me to think about which is kind of why like I, I read Nietzsche and don't understand most of it just so I can reread it and have more questions. And uh, it's the, the kind of books that you can actually feel your brain heating up. <laughs> like you can feel parts of your brain activating that aren't usually being used. Um, so I'm used to a bit heavier books. Books like this are kind of candy in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no challenge to reading it. It was pretty predictable all the way through what was going to happen. It was completely obvious that the main character is going to get everything he wants because that's, that's just how books like this were written. So I wasn't really surprised by anything. My, my brain started generating these weird fantasies of how the book would go just so that I would think that it would go a different way. Like I, it, the first couple of lines are talking about how he found the copper key mm-hmm. and in my brain, 
this was a single book where at the end of the book, he's like, and there it was the copper key. And that's the last line of the book. <laughs> and he never resolves who wins the contest or where the co- or whether the contest has ever won. The entire novel is how I did the first step. And then the author never goes back to it. Now that would actually be really cool. <laughs> um, or maybe all the way up to the third key where one person finds the third key. I don't know. Something, yeah. Some variation of that. But yeah, that would, without the, the kind of giving the nerds everything they want ending, I think would have been more interesting. Yeah. The, um, you said candy. The term I usually use is bubblegum. Yeah. Bubblegum is, is a perfectly fantastic way to blow a little bit of time. Um, it you chew it up until the flavor is gone and then you spit it out, but there's no particular desire to revisit that piece of bubble gum. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a perfectly fine way to, you know, blow a day or two, depending upon how much you consume per day. Yeah. I think I read the book over a weekend and it's, you know, it's average length for a novel, but I just kind of breezed right through it. And then other books around the the same time I read uh, stranger in a strange land. Mm-hmm. And I, I rationed that book out for like <laughs> four and a half weeks. Like, this is so freaking good. Everything about this book is amazing. I was reading like five or ten pages at a time. Like, okay, put it away. Put it away. Save it for later. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, here's the other thing my brain has started to play with is it's obvious from the bits of trailer that they've got that they've, that they're making substantive changes to what occurs Mm -hmm. and beyond that, that they're probably rewriting most of the references. Yeah. The references definitely mainly because of licensing. Right. So the question is, if you make all the references different, is it still the same story? Because if it is, then none of the references mattered at all. Yeah. If it's I mean, I, I, if it's if it's a different story that's only vaguely similar then maybe those references are actually what made the story good in which case the movie's going to be terrible even if Spielberg's involved. I I think it's entirely possible that it could still be a good movie and not really have anything to do with the book other than being based on the same concept of an oasis and a contest. I think that's entirely possible that you could have a good book or a good movie based on a good book that is almost nothing like the book. And I would say Starship Troopers is a good example of that, where it was a reasonably good movie. It's fun to watch. There's a huge fandom around it, but it is nothing like the book. The book is completely different themes of how humans and, and how society functions. It's not about war. It's not about fighting, per se. It's about how to develop a citizen and the movie is about you know it's just a funny alien action flick but it was fun so I'm, I, don't, I don't I guess I don't have great expectations for the movie I think it'll be fun to watch I'll definitely either go see it or watch it online when it comes out but uh, I'm more excited about the possibility that it could get a bunch of people excited about VR. And I'm more interested in the Oasis slash metaverse style of world, which is the other topic I wanted to talk about. The Oasis, the Oasis feels very much like Facebook. It seemed like basically the, the Oasis company just felt like Facebook. Like, here's this one big company that controls this ecosystem, and other people can make stuff for it, but it's really all controlled here. Um, and I, I felt like, you know, it was kind of, kind of a combination of Facebook and the iOS store, where, sure, you can, anybody can publish apps here if you do it our way, and anybody can make a world in the Oasis if you do it our way, or buy our servers, or buy our planets. So I felt like that was a bit of it. Um, in the podcast I've listened to, I'm hearing more and more references to web VR and just kind of the open web for VR. And people are more often saying, like, why are people waiting for the metaverse? It's already here. It's called the Internet. It just needs a 3D interface now. 
Like that's actually a pretty good point. We've already got a lot of the interconnectivity of a metaverse style system. It's just all in text and some videos and images. We just need to actually have a 3D interface for it and 3D content for it. So obviously that sounds easy, Joe. Why don't we just do that this weekend? Well, I didn't say it's easy, <laughs> but it but it's it's easier than I think building that type of framework on web technology is easier than relying on Facebook and Oculus to give us the Oasis. Like, I don't want to wait around for that and have it their way, or I don't want to wait around for Microsoft or Apple's version of it. I'd rather have the open option, and I'd rather have both. You know, I want I want a a metaverse style internet where I can be on the open web on VR sites and then still go into siloed applications as I need to now. Like I don't do all my work in a web browser. I still use plenty of applications on my desktops. So I think there's a, a I think there's a compelling use case for both. Obviously, native apps can do a lot that web apps can't. Web apps can do a lot that native apps can't. And I think I don't see why that stops being true for VR necessarily. So I've been obviously I've been thinking about looking looking into A-frame for a while, and I've got this course that I picked up on Udemy a couple of months ago, and I think I may spend the week just learning more about Web VR and A-frame and working my way through this course and and catching up on it. I don't really have any objective or any particular project I want to do with it. I just want to kind of answer some questions and take care of the curiosity aspect because I've, I've heard enough about it to be really, really interested in it, but I know nothing about it. So it's just like, there's this blob of interest over here, just floating around constantly. I need to go find out what that's about. Yeah. As I'm thinking more about trying to do, I mean, just in, in terms of this discussion, trying to do, web as VR. <clears throat> like right now, if I'm on a particular website, my exposure to other websites is functionally limited to a search result. Mm-hmm. But in a VR environment, if there are a thousand different companies developing that space, they all get to execute code on my machine. At some level. You get what I mean? Like all these Mm -hmm. objects get to animate and move and do stuff and respond to gestures and whatever while in this larger environment. Depending on what environment you're in. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about having a, a place you go in VR that is the Internet in the abstract sense. I'm talking about you go to my site. You're interacting with my site now. You're mm-hmm. not just off somewhere in corporeal in corporeal land. Gotcha. I don't I, think anybody's thinking that. And and that's a VR interface for your site. And my brain was going with, okay, what's the difference between that and the Oasis? And the difference between that and the Oasis is is multiple people or companies developing that content simultaneously, and it's somehow harmoniously merging, even yeah. if it's harmoniously cacophonously it's still gonna all run in one place or you're not actually to the point that you've built an entire city in vr unless it's one app i mean mean, or or one site why would the city be any different than say a page of google search results like we're at the end of the day, we're just talking about links. If you spend some time in Janus VR, you may have a better idea what I'm talking about. Where in Janus VR, you're in one room on a web server somewhere, mm-hmm. and you click on a link, and it opens a door, and you walk through the door into the other one. Okay, and you can see it load behind you, and you've usually only got two or three loaded at a time. But I think over time, as the technology gets better and as the APIs get better more and more content could be loaded or pre-rendered. But the APIs, at least the web VR stuff, is is pretty intelligent about how it works now, making mm-hmm. sure that malicious code isn't running if you don't want it to be. Um, the way that, like I was reading about it this afternoon, the way the API stack is 
essentially built is a site detects if you have a connected device or if you have I think I'm going to get this wrong. Let me look at the uh, yeah, the Wikipedia page. A request a request a list of available VR devices. Check to see if the desired devices supports the presentation mode of the application. If so, the application advertises VR functionality to the user. User performs an action that indicates they want to enter VR mode. Request a VR session to present the VR content with. Begin a render loop that produces graphical frames to be displayed on the VR device. Continue producing frames until the user indicates that they wish to exit VR mode. Exit the VR session. So that's just you know basically mm-hmm. visiting a browser on your phone sure. or computer and going into it that way. Um, these things are still pretty early, and this article is a couple months out of date. Um, but having having the web be the thing that connects all the worlds together rather than i'm not saying necessarily the the google based web that we know and love today mm-hmm. of clicking from one site to the next i'm not saying that needs to be the metaverse but i'm saying we already have the technology stack on the back end that servers can talk to servers can talk to servers and clients can talk to all those servers why would we want to just wait for apple or facebook to come up with some pr- entirely proprietary back end thing that we can only use their way. Like the the cloud kit version of the metaverse does not sound appealing. To me. <laughs> um, no, <clears throat> I'm with you there. That, and maybe that's part of my difficulty is I granted you your initial thesis that we don't want to, it would be better to have something decentralized than something that is centralized within a single company. Um, I think that there is a humongous leap and in particular between what we currently have available in VR and what, for example, this movie will be selling to people as the promise of VR. Mm-hmm. I think that that those steps are really far away and they're even farther. If we're looking for a decentralized web experience, yeah. um, rather than, you know, and, and let, instead of thinking about Apple, I think more about uh, Activision Blizzard. You know, let the people who did World of Warcraft make one because they've kind of already done it. Mm-hmm. You know, all they have to do is start connecting some of their various worlds and add VR to what's already a 3D environment. And yeah, we're kind of there um, in, a, in a smaller version. And it all kind of works. I mean, you can you can kind of do it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably look pretty good too. I don't know. There's probably some corner of the web where people are playing WoW in VR, and I just don't know about it. And I'm okay with staying that way. Uh, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Um, but I, I was just thinking about the the technical issues of trying to do a decentralized metaverse, and. Like if I'm just in your site and just looking at your site, that's like being inside somebody's house in the metaverse. You're not in the metaverse. You're in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. The The most interesting thing you can do there is look out the window and maybe see something else. But all these various, if you're walking down the street in the metaverse, you're not really in one person's system. Yeah. Or it's all dependent upon one person or one company building a thing, and then you're stringing together cities. You know, we've got this this no man's land between cities that nobody can load code in, so we can unload one company's city and load another company's city as you move into the next one. Mm-hmm. Yay, loading screens. Um, <clears throat> and I think that just that that promise of what we've seen in media of the metaverse is really far away and will be so dramatically easier for a single company to do because they can apply those controls that it's going to be very difficult for a decentralized one to do what it needs to do just because we've got so many bad actors. Yeah. I mean, you keep saying the word decentralized. Have you heard of Decentraland? I haven't. 
it is a I'm not sure if they qualify as a startup or, or what, but they're trying to spin up now. They've they're basically they've got a roadmap they've been working on for the last couple of years, and they're trying to make this entire kind of concept of a decentralized metaverse without anyone having too much control. It's a little ironic that it's a startup doing this. So I'm not really sure how they have that built into their charter of like we're we're not really in charge. We're just doing all the work. Um it's pretty interesting. Basically, they're at the point now of just selling VR real estate for the future. And I watched a couple of videos on it and read some of their white paper. And it all sounds very interesting, but they lost me when the only way to buy real estate was through Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I'm like, nah, never mind. <laughs> like, if I can't just give you some money, then later. Let me know when I can do that. Yeah, I'll have to dig into some of this stuff and take a look. In Decentraland, users have full control over the content of the land they own and keep all the proceeds from the value they generate for other users. Mm-hmm. Yeah, figuring out exactly what that means. Yeah. Because I've, I've talked to some people. I never got involved in it myself, but I had some friends who ran like MUDs. And... Not just multi-user systems, but systems that span multiple servers. And so you could bop along, and you've always got to worry about that guy who makes a land that's just piles of gold. Yeah. And if I don't have the power to completely destroy the economy, then I don't actually have unlimited power. But if I do have unlimited power, then I have the ability to destroy the economy of your entire place. Like, how does that actually work? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Anyway, You've you got to figure out how to like introduce scarcity to a post-scarcity computer system. <laughs> I think you're you're going in a totally different direction than I am. I'm more interested in how can I write JavaScript that puts 3D assets in a headset? Right. And you're more, you're more interested in the philosophical and political ramifications of, I, I like the idea of a de- decentralized thing, and that's why I want to look into right. WebVR. But I think WebVR has immediate practical uses from a financial standpoint if I'm going to make money in the VR space as well. So I have no idea what I'm going to actually do with it or if I do anything with it long term. But I'm going to spend a couple di- couple days this week looking into it and learning more about it so I can decide if it's something I want to actually invest time and resources in. But, yeah, I mean, keeping thinking about it from a development standpoint, that's where I want to go. Can I use this to make stuff? Particularly, you know, I've always wanted to have my own VR website that if I'm working on an Unreal Engine or Unity game, and I just made a new 3D asset in Maya or some other program, I want to have a site where I can just upload that asset and people can check it out. Like, here's what I did today, rather than sharing screen snaps on Twitter. You know, go look at the thing I just made. Here's right. the new sword I made. Go pick it up and play with it. Things like that would be kind of cool. I also want to read. I want to make my library in VR, but have it be publicly accessible. But I, you know, have 3D versions of all the books, even though I have all eBooks now. Yeah, it's like your library is very. I mean, your physical library is very small now, Joe. Yeah, the one thing I miss about having a physical library is being able to take all the books off the shelf and organize them the way that I want. <laughs> I can't really do that with sorting algorithms. <laughs> <clears throat> there were some blog posts. Gosh, there might have even been some audio recording stuff many years ago from uh, Will Shipley, mm-hmm. who I think was, I think Delicious Library was one of the first things to take a list of an electronic list of books and try to generate for you a bookshelf out of it. Nice, a, a visual three D bookshelf that you could kind of touch a book and it would pop out and then kind of open. Um, and he was talking about, you know, 
running out through an Amazon API that now that we know what book it is, we actually know how long the book is, how many pages there are. And so they could adjust the thickness or even the height of the book based upon the dimensions that came out of the Amazon database. Mm-hmm. So they could put a larger book and get like cover art so they could then know what color the binding likely was and just kind of wrap this thing in a texture and throw your book on the shelf. Kind of a fun process. Yeah, I've done, I haven't done the 3D aspect of that, but I've done a lot of API scraping. I used the Amazon one a little bit, but I used the uh, Open Library API quite a bit a couple years ago as I was making my books database, which is now sadly retired into a spreadsheet. Really? Yep. A spreadsheet? Yep. Joe. The the books database served a purpose when I had physical books. It, the main reason I made it was to have something on my phone when I went book shopping so I could stop myself from buying duplicates. But all my books are ebooks now and I don't really need that. The only thing I was using the database for at this point was tracking what I what I read. When I finished a book, I would make a, a new entry of you know, this book was finished on this date. And that you, that can just live in a spreadsheet now. Joe, I'm dis- I I'm, I'm disappointed. I don't think I have any active FileMaker databases for myself professionally or personally anymore. I think I've retired all of them. I'm I'm still back on the books database and just just disappointed. <laughs> I mean, Spre- side- spreadsheets aren't for data storage, Joe. That's not what they're for. <laughs> They're not for data storage and organization. They are now. No. No. Gosh. So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm at VRHermit underscore Joe. Uh, We also have a website, VRHermits.com. If you could, like us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice. 